The International Association for Near-Death Studies presents NDE Radio, a weekly exploration of near-death experiences and similar encounters with the other side. Now, here's your host, Lee Whitting. Welcome to NDE Radio, brought to you on behalf of IONS, the International Association for Near-Death Studies. I'm your host, Lee Whitting. Our guest today, Dr. Bruce Grayson, is a legend among those of us who yearn to learn more about all of the ramifications of the near-death experience. Dr. Grayson has researched the implications for years and even helped found uh, found IONS, uh, the IONS organization itself. Dr. Grayson is Professor Emeritus of Psychiatry and Neurobehavioral Sciences at UVA School of Medicine. He served on the medical school faculty at the Universities of Michigan, Connecticut, and Virginia. As I mentioned, he was a co-founder and president of the International Association for Near-Death Studies and editor of the Journal of Near-Death Studies. His award-winning research led him to become a Distinguished Life Fellow of the American Psychiatric Association and to be invited uh, by the Dalai Lama to participate in a dialogue between Western scientists and Buddhist monks in India. Moreover, Dr. Grayson's many fans and followers will be delighted to learn that tomorrow, March 2nd, is the release date for Dr. Grayson's new book, After, A Doctor Explores What Near-Death Experiences Reveal About Life and Beyond. Dr. Grayson, welcome to NDE Radio. Well, thank you, Lee. I'm delighted to be talking to you today. Bruce, let me first say I, I really like the way you've structured this book, After, to to reflect your early growing curiosity about NDEs and yeah. how it's heavily exemplified by some really amazing experiences from people you've known and worked with. For example, maybe you could tell our listeners the story about the spaghetti stained tie. <laughs> yeah. Well, let me preface it by saying that I grew up in a, a scientific household. Um, my father was a chemist and in our family, we just never talked about anything non-material it's not that we were opposed to anything spiritual or religious. It just never occurred to us to talk about those things. As far as we were concerned, the physical world was all there was. And when you died, that was the end. So I went through um, college and medical school with that materialistic mindset. And then in a couple of months after I graduated from medical school, I was starting my psychiatric training. And I was asked to see a patient in the emergency room who had overdosed um, I went to see her, and uh, she was apparently unconscious. I couldn't arouse her, so I assumed she was overdosed on something that made her drowsy. But her roommate, who had brought her in, was waiting down the hall in another room to talk with me. So I interviewed the roommate about what was going on in the patient's life and what she might have taken and so forth. Then I went back to see the patient, and she was still out cold. So she was going to be admitted to the intensive care unit, and I went to see her when she woke up the following morning. When I went to see her in the morning, I introduced myself and she said, uh, I know who you are. I remember you from last night. That kind of surprised me because I thought she was unconscious the night before. So I said that to her. I said, you know, I, I didn't think you could see me last night. I thought you were asleep. And then she looked me straight in the eye and said, not in my room. I saw you talking to my roommate. Well, that kind of threw me because I, I couldn't imagine how that could be. Uh, the only way she could possibly have seen that is if she had left her body and come down to the other room with me. And as far as I could tell, that made no sense at all. I and mean, I thought I was my body. How can you leave it? So she sensed my uh, 
skepticism, and she went on to tell me about the conversation I had with her roommate, um, including everything we said, where we were sitting, what we were wearing, including a drop of spaghetti on my tie, which I had dropped on it just before I came down to the emergency room, um, in which I had tried to cover with my lab coat so that nobody would see it. Uh, well, this kind of threw me because I, I just could not imagine how this could be. Um, however, uh, this it was quite unnerving, but I couldn't deal it then with my confusion because I had to, a job to do to help her deal with her confusion and her suicidal thinking. So I tried to push it out of my mind and just uh, help her with, with what was going on in her life. In the few days after that, though, as I reflected on it, I, I just couldn't believe this had really happened. And I thought maybe I had misinterpreted things, maybe I had misheard what she was saying, or maybe somebody was playing a trick on me, although I couldn't imagine how. But I tried not to deal with this. It was just too, actually too scary to, to think about someone actually being able to leave their bodies. Uh, and that was the way it was for about three or four more years until I read, med, I met Raymond Moody uh, and read his book, Life After Life, in 1975, that gave us the term near-death experience and described for us what they're like. And for the first time, I realized that what this patient had told me years earlier was not just one isolated event, but part of a large phenomenon that was actually quite common. I still couldn't explain it. Uh, but that meant to me as a scientist, I needed to study it. Because uh, as far as I could tell, uh, as a scientist, your job is not to run away from things you don't understand, but to run towards them and try to understand them. And here I am 50 years later, still trying to understand them. <laughs> yes, me too. Me too. And I, I, I had one myself and I still wonder. <laughs> Uh, I, I noticed that you uh, visited Mystery Hill and actually lay down on the altar. At, yes, uh, yes. I've been there. It, uh -huh. it is a really interesting place. It I hadn't is. thought about the possibility that it was just a way, uh, you know, a, a place to do other things other than uh, the ritual sacrifice that it implies. Yeah, um, yeah. yeah my, uh, my father had taken me there when I was when I was a child. Um, this is just generally his. Uh, his desire to explore things he couldn't understand. And here was this site that seemed to be um, ruins maybe from, from Vikings or nobody really knew what. Um, and we, we went there to try to make some measurements and try to see if we could figure out what it was all about. And, of course, we didn't understand it. And um, subsequent people who knew more than we did also couldn't figure out exactly what it was. Um, there are several hypotheses, uh, but no one really has the right answer for it yet. Mm. One nice thing about your book as well is the, the fact that you reference certain early reports of NDEs. Um, uh, one was the uh, Swiss uh, geology professor Albert von St. Gallenheim. Yes. Who yes. was a teacher of Einstein's. And it, I have heard it theorized that, um, that Einstein maybe got his notion of the a relationship of speed and time from this anecdote about uh, Heim falling off yeah, yeah. Uh, a, a mountain and time seemed to slow way down for him as it does in many accidents and other things. Right. Time seems to just take forever when you're, when you're in a catastrophic situation. Yeah. Yeah. Hi, Heim was, was a geology professor at the Zurich Polytechnical Institute. Um, but 20 years earlier than that, he had fallen while he was climbing in the Alps and he fell about 60 feet, repeatedly crashing against, against the rocks, getting bloodier and bloodier. And he wrote about this and said, 
that he had previously watched other people fall, and it was terrifying to watch people fall. But when he was actually falling, it wasn't scary at all. It was blissful. And he could watch himself from a detached perspective, repeatedly crashing against the rocks, and he didn't feel any pain. He was feeling wonderful. Not only that, but as he was falling, time seemed to stop, and he was able to think about how he needed to turn around in midair so he'd land in the snow rather than on the rocks. He had time to think about whether he should take his glasses off or not, whether they break. He had time to think about his loved ones who he was leaving behind. And he was so impressed by this phenomenon that was so unexpected to him that he started asking other mountain climbers, and he quickly found 30 other cases just like his. And he published this in the yearbook of the Swiss Alpine Club in 1892, our first collection of near-death experiences. He was also so impressed by this experience that he told all his classes at the Zurich Polytechnic Institute about this experience. And years later, a young Albert Einstein took two classes from him in which he heard Heim talk about, as you fall faster and faster, time gets slower and slower. And about 15 years later, Einstein wrote in his theory of relativity that when you get faster and faster, time slows down. I have to give credit to Joe Green, a psychologist in California, for bringing that to my attention. He actually published a letter in the Journal of Near-Death Studies many years ago describing this connection between Einstein and the NDE. Mm. I can't remember where I heard it, I, I, but uh, was, it was good to be reminded of it uh, yes. in your book. There were some observations that always raise questions. One was a fellow who thought he heard Satan's voice. And yes. then he heard God's voice, and he yes. could tell the difference between right. Right. Satan's voice as a hallucination and God's voice as being real. Yeah. How do you yeah. account for that difference of understanding? Well, I can't, I can't account for it. Um, this, this was <laughs> a, a, a patient who had schizophrenia, and he was hearing, he was hallucinating uh, the voice of Satan telling him that he was evil and needed to kill himself. So he jumped, he climbed up to the roof of his dorm, his college dorm. He was a first year college student. And he jumped off the roof, uh, intending to die. And he said that on the way down, he heard God speaking to him. And God told him that he was one of God's children, not one of Satan's, and he is not going to be able to die. And God would save him. And he ended up not dying. He broke several bones, but ended up um, just being hospitalized for these conditions. And and I saw him um, I was one of the psychiatrists treating him in the hospital. And as he's describing this to me, he's describing hearing Satan's voice, which he called a hallucination, and hearing God's voice, which he called real. And I stopped him and then said, no, wait a minute. You're telling me you heard these two voices that no one could hear except you. And you think one of them is a hallucination and the other one is real. How do you tell them apart? And he kind of shrugged and said, I can't really tell you, but I can tell you that God's voice was more real than your voice is the way your voice is more real than Satan's voice was. Mm-hmm. And I've heard from one near-death experiencer after another that what happens in a near-death experience has a hyper-real quality to it, much more real than this daily life we have in the physical world. Yeah. One of the things that you cover pretty thoroughly in the book because you come back to it again and again is the difference between the physical brain and the mind. Right, right. And I wonder if you could tell our listeners how you see the two. Sure. Well, 
the mind is simply that part of us that thinks and feels and perceives and makes decisions. And the brain is that three pounds of, of material inside our skulls. Um, and we usually think in daily life that the mind is just what the brain does, that all our thoughts and feelings are created by the brain because it seems that way in daily life. When you get intoxicated, um, your brain gets uh, intoxicated and you don't think very well. Or when you get hit on the head or have a stroke, that affects your thinking. So it seems in daily life like your mind and the brain are the same thing or the brain creates the mind. But in extreme circumstances like near-death experiences where the brain seems to be seriously impaired, if not totally offline, people report that their thinking was clearer than ever and their perceptions were more vivid than ever. And they're able to form memories all the time that their brains are not functioning. So this suggests that under extreme circumstances, the mind is able to separate itself from the brain. And I should say that the near-death experience is not the only example of that. Uh, in some people who have advanced dementia and who have not been able to communicate for years or recognize family, suddenly become completely lucid in the hours before death and they recognize family and carry on coherent conversations and then they go on to die. And here again, it's as if as the brain is deteriorating more and more, it sort of stops being able to get in the way of the mind so the mind can come through again. Well, if the brain is standing in the way of the mind and the brain is failing, say, through Alzheimer's, do you suppose there's some way, rather than trying to enable the brain again, one could disable the brain sufficient mm. to let the mind come through? Well, if we knew enough about the brain to do that, maybe we could. Um, this, I should say, <laughs> is not by any means a new idea. Hippocrates wrote about this 2,000 years ago. He wrote that the, the brain is an interpreter or a messenger of the mind. Um, and we've been that's been kind of a minority opinion in neuroscience for 2,000 years. Mm. You have a nice analogy about a flashlight in a warehouse being the brain, and then someone turning on the overhead lights. The flashlight just picks out individual items in the where in this huge warehouse, but the entire thing is illuminated by the mind. Yeah, actually, uh, Anita Morjani wrote this in her book uh, "Dying to Be Me," that in everyday life it's as if we're living in this dark warehouse with just a flashlight, and we can look around at what the flashlight shines on and see that, but we have no idea. Well, what else is in the in the the warehouse until someone turns on the light and you see everything and you're just astounded by this and then when the light's turned off again even though all you have is the flashlight again you still remember what's out there hmm. and she says the near-death experience is like having the lights turn on again yeah I, i'm sorry i i forgot that that had come from her uh from yeah. her book but it's a powerful image. I'm glad you included it. Yes. The idea that LSD decreases brain activity mm. is another topic you touch on. And I'm wondering if that is a way of shutting down part of the brain in order for the mind to come through. Then it takes me back again to Alzheimer's. And perhaps there's a chemical way of dealing with that. Right. We always assumed that the way psychedelic drugs like LSD work is by stimulating the brain to hallucinate. But in the last decade or so, we've had more sophisticated neuroimaging techniques, and we've been able to study what goes on in the brain of people who are taking LSD or psilocybin. And in fact, the more elaborate mystical experiences with these drugs are associated with a decrease in electrical activity in the brain. 
So again, it's like the brain is being gotten out of the way so the mind can fully manifest itself. Um, it does look very promising, uh, but we don't really know that much about the brain yet or how these drugs work on it to be able to reliably uh, knock the brain out. Yeah. I had a, um, a, a patient in uh, the, where I was chaplain who had a grandma seizure, and she said, she told me when that happened, and, and her brain was just, I guess, awash in electricity, she had the feeling that she suddenly had the answer to every question mm. she ever wanted. And then, of course, when her brain kicked back in, she couldn't remember what all those right. answers were. Right. Very, right. very frustrating. But uh, you talk also about seizures and how they can yes. uh, yeah. do that yeah. sort I, of thing. I, actually, that, that sense of being able to understand everything and then forgetting it when you come back is something we hear from near-death experiencers, that in the NDE, everything was crystal clear. But once they're back in the body and in this brain again, it doesn't quite make sense. But yeah, I did some research with, with seizures because there were theories that activity in the right temporal lobe was causing people to have a sense of leaving their bodies. So I studied people who have seizures about what they experienced during the seizure. And we found that by and large, people don't remember anything from seizures, but a small percentage do. And we found that about 7% of people who have seizures have something at least vaguely reminiscent of an out-of-body experience. And often it's, it's very vague, like I had a sense of not being in my body anymore, or I lost track of my body. But they were not associated with the right temporal lobe. They were all over the brain. So there wasn't any one particular area of the brain that was involved with a sense of being out of the body. The condition that we were talking about a little earlier, I think you term, or it's termed terminal lucidity. Yes, yes. And um, I've, I've seen cases like that, and it's it's really remarkable. And perhaps that terminal lucidity, if that's a deterioration of part of the brain, we could figure out which part of the brain that is and right. and then go after that to to help with the Alzheimer's problems. Right, right. Yeah, it's very difficult to know where in the brain you should be looking for these these problems. Um, the brain is a very difficult area to study, particularly when someone is still alive. Um, mm. There's just so much you can do in, invasively. Just a complete change of subject. Well, not complete, but um, you tell the story of uh, Confidius, a story from Pliny the Elder in the first century. Yes. I wonder if you yes. could tell, tell the listeners about that. Sure. Well, a, a lot of people in a near-death experience report encountering deceased loved ones. And, of course, a lot of skeptics can dismiss this as wishful thinking or expectation. You think you're dying, so, of course, you imagine seeing your parents who died 20 years ago. Um, but there are some cases, well-documented, in which people see deceased loved ones that were not known to be dead, in which case you can't attribute this to expectation. And Pliny the Elder wrote about this in ancient Rome um, in the first century. Uh, and Corfidius was a Roman nobleman who had died, and he was taken to a, um, a funeral home. And his brother had made arrangements with the funeral director to have him embalmed and made all the arrangements for the funeral. And as he was getting ready to be embalmed, uh, Corfidius suddenly sat up. Um, and he stunned the, uh, the, the, the funeral director by saying, 
um, I was just at my brother's house and my brother just died. And he told me to take care of his daughter and he told me where the treasure was buried in, the, in his backyard. And as he's telling this to the funeral director, his brother's servant comes running into the funeral home saying that his master has just died. So this is the first example we have of this case where uh, people see deceased loved ones who no one knew uh, had died. And we have cases just in the last few years of the same type of thing, very well documented. Mm. You say pretty well into the book, uh, and this is, the book is sort of reflecting your progress as well, but you say you started out as a skeptical scientist by your by your own admission, and then fairly well into the book, you you say I'm out of my element dealing with religious doctrines. I was wondering right. if you have seen any um, change in your own thinking about those about religious doctrines. Well, I've certainly I've seen a lot of changes in my thinking as a result of fifty years working with near death experiences. Um, one of the biggest changes is that when I started off, I was sure that science had the answers to everything. And now I am very comfortable accepting the fact that we just don't have answers for a lot of things, that uncertainty is fine. Um, almost every near-death experiencer I've ever talked to, and there have been thousands, have been utterly convinced that death is not the end. It's just a transition to another state of consciousness. And I find it hard to argue with that now. I, I can no longer believe that the materialistic mindset I had explains much of anything. Um, so I do believe that something happens after death. Uh, what it is, though, is still a mystery to me. Most near-death experiencers say that uh, when they try to explain to you what happened in the NDE, they find that there just aren't words to explain it. So when we make them tell us, we know we're making them use metaphors that are come available to them to be able to describe to us what's happening. So when they describe what's what they actually experience in a quote afterlife, they're using concrete metaphors so we can understand what they're talking about. But I don't take it as a literal description of what they actually experienced. So I don't know what to expect um, when I die. Uh, there are certainly a lot of religious beliefs that tell us what's going to happen. And many near-death experiences resort to those, uh, those labels, those beliefs to try to describe to us. But they usually say, what I experienced just doesn't fit with what I was taught in Sunday school or in church. And they will say, for example, I saw this warm, loving being of light that made me feel accepted. And I'm going to call it God so I can talk to you about it. But it wasn't the God I was taught about. It's much bigger than what the church told me it was. Um, so I don't really know um, what to make of their descriptions, except that it is very convincing that death is not the end. And in fact, what comes after death is not something to be feared. Um, hmm. What, what um, have you encountered uh, many stories about reincarnation and what's your thinking about that? Um, I have not. Uh, there are a few. I have had a, a couple of, uh, a few near-death experiences who described a life review, which was not limited to the current lifetime, but included uh, details from a, from a past life. And in a few of these cases, very few, we've been able to verify that the events they described actually took place uh, in terms of another person's life. Mm. And it's hard to explain how those things happen 
unless you accept the fact that this person was reincarnated. Now, that's not the only possible explanation. It's the one that comes most readily to mind. Um, but actually, the, my colleagues at the University of Virginia have been collecting cases of very young children, two, three, four years old, who describe a past life. And in about half of the almost 2,500 cases they've collected, they've been able to corroborate some of the details of the past life. And here again, they strongly suggest that reincarnation occurs, but that is not the only possible explanation for these cases. Mm. You, do, you do mention that uh, most religions uh, stress the importance of what we call the golden rule, right? Uh, which is basically a, a, a form of compassion. Uh, right. I wonder if some of that comes from uh, religious people who've had mystical visions of um, of the life review, where, for instance, we stand supposedly in the other person's shoes and feel the pain we inflicted on them. Right, right. When you talk to someone who's had a near-death experience in which they had, in their life review, re-experienced things not only through their eyes, but through other people's lives, their, quote, victims' lives— um, that really gives you a strong sense of that we are not separate individuals. We are all part of something greater than ourselves. And what you do to somebody else, you're ultimately doing to yourself. And that makes competition uh, just pointless. Uh, it makes altruism and compassion the most logical thing to do. Um, you know, many near-death experiencers say that coming out of the NDE, they no longer look at uh, the golden rule as a guideline we're supposed to try to achieve, but as just the way the universe works. It's a law of nature like gravity. Um, and I think you're right that the reason almost every religion we have has some version of the golden rule in it is that most religions came from mystical experiences like NDEs. Yes. Um, and I thought it was, it was interesting as well that um, – you quoted the Dalai Lama, and mm. here I'm paraphrasing that scientific, uh, the scientific approach was not so different from the West to the East, but in the West it's it's used to uh, obtain control over things, whereas to the Buddhist it's to live harmoniously with uh, with the world as it is. Right, right. That was in a conference in which we were discussing uh, Western science and and Buddhist uh, belief systems, um, and he made the point that that both Western science and Buddhism are not dogmatic uh, practices. They're, they're open to um, exploration. And if what you find contradicts your beliefs, you have to change your beliefs. Mm. But he said that the difference, as you said, is that Western science tries to understand nature and the world in order to control it. Whereas Buddhism attempts to explain, to understand nature and the world in order to live more harmoniously with it. Um, and this is something you see in, in many, many uh, non-Western cultures. Um, yeah. The, uh, toward the end of the book, you, you say, uh, you named the book after, not only because it's about what happens after we die, but also you'd like to know what happens after people read this book. <laughs> and, I was, and, and I was wondering uh, whether, whether uh, you're in your writing of this book, uh, something something changed in you. Yeah, I also wrote it because it's it's not just what happens after death, but what happens after a near-death experience. And as a psychiatrist, 
What's most interesting to me about the NDE is how it changes people's lives. I've talked to people in their 90s who had the experience as children or as teenagers who said, it's, it's as if it happened yesterday. It's changed my life. I had never gone back to the way I was before. And I think that there's some evidence coming out now that just hearing about or learning about near-death experiences can help other people who haven't had the experience make the same kinds of changes in their lives. There have been studies among college students who take courses in NDEs, nursing students, and even one study of a high school class that was taught about NDEs who became much more compassionate and altruistic after taking a class in NDEs. And I'm hoping that uh, my book will also serve the same purpose of teaching people enough about near-death experiences and their effects that then they also help people reevaluate their lives and make their changes to make their lives more meaningful and fulfilling. Hmm. Well, I think the book uh, will uh, will achieve that if people read it carefully, because the uh, the way you present the information, the way you've tied these stories to the, the uh, study of mind versus brain, for example, it just works. At least for me, it worked really well. Bruce, we're out of time for today, unfortunately. Um, how can the listeners find out more about your work with NDEs and NDEers? Do you have a website? or I do. I do. It's, it's www.brucegreyson.com. And there's information about my book, about ordering it, about near-death experiences, about uh, my research, about other resources to, to learn more about near-death experiences, including IONS, of course. Yes, and you're uh, doing some work with IONS coming up, aren't you? Yes, there, there's a conference coming up next month on basically clinical care of near-death experiences. Oh, and so if people wanted to know more about that, they could go to the IONS website. Right, right. Bruce, thank you so much for doing this. Thank you for your book. It's a really excellent book. I would really recommend it to people. I read it over a 24-hour period. <laughs> it's easy reading, actually, because the stories are so fascinating. So I would encourage people to go out and get a copy. If listeners would like to hear this show again or any of our nearly 400 past shows, just go to NDE Radio and hit the Past Shows button. For more about IONS, go to their website at iands.org. And listen again next Monday, 11 a.m. Eastern, for more NDE Radio. This is Lee Whitting saying thanks for listening. <laughs>